This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, it's Doro, and I'm so excited to announce that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is just around the corner on October 26th at Georgetown University. For our Health Gig listeners, we have a special offer. If you sign up by September 20th, you'll get $50 off your ticket. Just go to AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com and use the code HEALTHGIG. Get ready to create a happier and healthier life story. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Bob Roth is an educator, author, and meditation teacher for nearly 40 years. He serves as vice president of the David Lynch Foundation, overseeing foundation-sponsored transcendental meditation programs in schools, colleges, American Indian reservations, prisons, rehab, homeless and veteran centers, and universities. He is also the author of Strength in Stillness, and Maharashi Mahesh Yogi's Transcendental Meditation. So, Bob, welcome to Health Gig. It's so great to be here. I'm really excited. Thanks for being here. Sure. I think we should start just by asking you, how did you get into TM? Well, it's an interesting story because I was born in Washington, D.C. My father was a doctor with the VA in San Francisco, so I grew up in San Francisco, and I was brought up to be very politically involved, very politically active, to care about the political dialogue, And as a 17-year-old, I worked for Senator Bobby Kennedy. And it wasn't that I was a Democrat or a Republican, but it was I wanted to make a better world, and I thought politics was the way to do that. And I saw Senator Kennedy speak in San Francisco Civic Auditorium, I remember it like it was yesterday, on June 1st, 1968. And I thought, wow, we're going to do something. And then four days later, he was gone. So I went to college in fall of 1968, and I decided I was going to go to law school and become a U.S. senator to change the world. So I really wanted to change the world. I thought politics was the way to go. I know it's a long answer, but I'm getting there. In 1968, it was so much turmoil and upheaval in the world, and I am still very much engaged in the political dialogue, but I thought that was never going to heal the soul of the nation the way I wanted to. My father was a doctor, and my mother was an educator, so I thought, okay, I'll write educational curriculum. I'll help give kids tools in an early age that they could help them navigate the world. So I'm going to school full-time, working full-time, stressed, a skeptic. And some guy told me about transcendental meditation. And Dora wasn't a word in my vocabulary because I'm an activist. I'm a doer. But I was also stressed out, and I was trying to focus and navigate. I wasn't into drugs. I wasn't into anything. And I decided I'd try it. And that was June 28, 1969. And I remember my first meditation. Afterwards, I thought, oh, so this is the tool I'm going to teach those kids. So, well, 50 years ago, I had the thought that I wanted to teach meditation as a tool to help heal the soul of the nation. And so I went from politics and legislation to that. And I've been doing it ever since. And not just for myself. Fine, it's for myself. But as they say, you know, the world is my family. And so I run a foundation to bring it to help heal the soul of children and veterans and women who are survivors of domestic violence. Long answer, but that's the truth. What role did the Maharishi, did you meet him? Did you learn from him? Were you a student of his? Yes, so Maharishi was a physicist in India before, and he studied with the top physicists in India before he had an opportunity to study with the top 
you could say, scientist of consciousness, brain scientist, his teacher for 13 years in the 40s and 50s. And then he came to the United States in 1959 bringing Transcendental Meditation. And the first thing he did is he went to Stanford Medical School and UCLA Medical School and Harvard Medical School and he said to the scientist there and said, please study this. This is a medical intervention. This is something that can heal mind and body. And then it started. And so then they started doing research. And then in 1970, I had an opportunity to attend a science conference with him in Humboldt State College. And that's the first time I met him. And then I've been teaching Transcendental Meditation for 47 years. And I've met him over the years. Was he a teacher of yours? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Very, very inspiring. When did you cross paths with David Lynch? And how did that happen? So I run the David Lynch Foundation, Mm -hmm. which is a nonprofit, which has brought this meditation now to a million inner city school kids and veterans, as I said, and women who are survivors of domestic violence for free. Mm -hmm. And now we're working with teens with opioid addiction. And we started the foundation 15 years ago. And you couldn't be two people who are more different. I'm this sort of normal, you know, sort of guy. And David is this phenomenally creative artist and just a creative mind who doesn't care if anybody understands what he's talking about, just abstraction. But he'd been practicing Transcendental Meditation, Doro, for 10 years before that or more. And there was just something about a connection. And I said to him, you know, David, I've always wanted to start a foundation, raise money so we could bring Transcendental Meditation to at-risk populations that would never have access to it, who may need it the most. So I said, I'd like to start a foundation. And he said, fine. And then I said, I'd like to put it in your name because nobody knows me. And he said, fine. then I said, can I write a press release about it? And I don't think he took the whole thing too seriously. So I wrote a really good press release saying David Lynch was starting a foundation to bring meditation to the world. And it was on the front pages of newspapers all over. And that was started 15 years ago. So that's how we met, shared interest in meditation. And why is it called Transcendental Meditation? Transcendental, it's a very good question. Can I use an analogy here to sort of take a moment here? All right, so to understand what the word meditation means, it's such an abstract word, nobody really knows what it means. You know, oh, I do mindfulness meditation, which is great, and I do guided meditation, and I use headspace or calm, or my meditation is when I work with pottery or paint or horseback ride. So what is meditation? And the analogy I like to use is you're on a little boat and you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and all of a sudden you get these giant 30, 40 foot waves and you look at the, and you go, oh my God, I'm in this little boat, these huge waves, the whole ocean is in upheaval. Whole ocean is a bit of an extreme because if you did a cross section out there, you'd realize you got these 30 foot waves, but the ocean is over a mile deep. And while the nature of the ocean could be turbulent on the surface, the nature of the ocean at its depth is pretty darn silent. And that's analogous to the mind. So the surface of our mind is like the waves, the thinking mind. They call it the monkey mind. I like to call it the gotta, 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 gotta mind. (laughs) I gotta do this and I gotta do that. All the gottas. Call him, call her, make a list, find a list, get up, slow down. And so it's a natural human desire to say, I'd like some inner calm, some inner clarity, some inner focus, some inner peace. And the operative word there is inner. And the question is, is there such a thing as an inner And if so, how do we get there? And enter the realm of meditation. Because meditation is associated with calm, clarity, power, creativity. And they used to think that all meditations were the same. Didn't matter what you did, had the same effect. Well, brain research now has identified three basic types of meditation. All legitimate, 
different degrees of difficulty, different outcomes. And I'm a firm believer that it's not either or. A person says, I do mindfulness, so I don't do Vipassana, or I do TM, so I don't do that. I think it's a yes and, and there's tools in a toolbox. So the three types that have been identified, first is called focused attention. Focused attention is a concentration form of meditation. It attempts to clear the mind of thoughts. The philosophy or the perspective there is, if you want to have a calm ocean, stop the waves. If you want to have a calm mind, stop thinking, because thoughts are the disruptor of calm. When you do that, it creates something called gamma brain waves, which are 20 to 50 cycles per second. That's when you're really working hard. You know, like a child is studying hard and not doing anything. They're exhausted at the end of the day from the mental concentration, hard work. So that's one type of meditation. Second approach to meditation is called open monitoring. As you know, there's many, many different types of mindfulness techniques. Open monitoring says thoughts are not the disruptor of calm. The content of thoughts can be the disruptor of calm. If you have a thought about a guy named Joe and you don't know any Joe, But if you have a thought about a guy named Joe and 20 years ago, Joe done you wrong, or two days ago, Joe done you wrong, you have a thought about a guy named Joe, you get tense. Open monitoring teaches us, as you know, you're experts in this, to be dispassionate observers, to step back and observe and don't be in the past. Don't be 20 years ago. Don't be two days ago. Don't worry about the future because Joe ain't here now and be in the moment. And in that moment is equanimity. So that's being present, being mindful. And when we do that type of approach, open monitoring, it creates something called theta brainwaves. Theta are four to eight cycles per second. And that's the type of brain when you're just sitting quietly thinking about something. You're not daydreaming where you're spacing out, but you're sort of like you see a child studying and they're just figuring something out. There's a calmness about them as they're figuring something out. Those two approaches are called cognitive processes, pertaining to thoughts, moods, feelings, pertaining to the waves, adapting to the waves, different attitude towards the waves. The third type is called self-transcending. And transcending just means deep, vertical. So in self-transcending, there's a hypothesis that deep within every human being right now, there's a level where your mind is already calm, settled, peaceful, like the ocean. There's a level deep within where the mind is calm. We've lost access. We're stuck up here. And transcendental meditation is an effortless technique that just allows your active, agitated thinking mind, cognitive thinking mind, to just settle deeply within. Access these quieter levels of the mind. And when that happens, there's a completely different brainwave signature. It's called alpha-1. That's 8 to 10 cycles per second, and that's a state where your mind is settled and wide awake. Also, your body gains a state of rest deeper than sleep in many regards. Cortisol levels, you know, cortisol, stress hormone. You get a good night's sleep, cortisol levels drop 10%. During 20 minutes of TM, cortisol levels drop 30 to 40%. And that's because it's the alpha one? Yes. The mind settles down to a state of rest Mm -hmm. because as we were talking about beforehand it's not the mind-body connection it is the mind-body you shouldn't even say there's no space between mind and body it's one word mind-body so as your agitated thinking mind calms down you know how you have a thought trish you say oh that kid's a hothead that kid's boiling over with rage and his poor body's tense and we say oh that kid is cool calm and collected cooler minds will prevail and there's an ease So during TM, the mind goes from the heated 
to that calmer, and that allows your body to get deep rest. And is it like yoga where you want to take it off the mat? So if I'm practicing 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon, is that something I access like, mm. right now? Are you accessing that a- deep absolutely, calm absolutely, here with me? Absolutely, because there's a spillover effect. Because in brain science, there's something called neuroplasticity, which is, you know, the neurons are the brain cells that fire together, connect together in meditation, wire together out of meditation. So that alpha one, that calm, restful alertness, the brain functions that way after meditation. So that's what allows your body to maintain an equanimity and the cortisol levels to stay down. And there's 400 scientific research studies on TM, and there's lots on mindfulness, that have shown profound changes to heart health, mental health. We're doing some large studies I can talk about later. It's interesting to hear you say that one practice can enhance another because we often hear people say, well, I practice TM. Oh, really? Well, I practice mindfulness. So we believe that one size does not fit all. Well, it's like saying I take vitamin C so I don't take vitamin D. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're different. They have different outcomes. The ability to observe your environment, training your mind or some breathing techniques or things like that. I work in schools. So a child starts the school day with 10 minutes of transcending and feels great. Now, at one in the afternoon, she or he has a big exam and he or she is quite nervous. So there's a wonderful breathing. You can, for one minute sitting at the desk without anybody knowing, you can do two minutes of a little breathing and then you're ready for the exam. Well, those are two different tools and there's evidence to show that helps. Two different tools. We need to equip not just our children, ourselves with the tools to maintain mental health. And you don't just do one exercise. You know, I only do sit-ups. That's my thing, just sit up. Well, that's like crazy town. You do the things that work. So we're all in agreement here. You know, I think that's such an important point because wherever you decide to start on this idea of coming inside or Mm -hmm. focusing in and wherever you decide to start, you look for support to be there. So as you said, oh, I could start with TM and maybe then add mindfulness or I'm a mindful practitioner and I can use TM to go deeper. Often with your faith too, using these kinds of tools to deepen yourself in your faith. Yes, in the toolbox, there's Mm -hmm. tools. Mm -hmm. There's not one tool. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's because I'm my father's son, who's a doctor. I love to see data because I believe that the issues, the reasons why people are turning to Ayurveda, they're turning to mindfulness, they're turning to transcendental meditation is because people are facing very serious issues, stress-related issues, whether it's insomnia or anxiety or depression or eating disorders or behavioral disorders or just this sort of concern that I'm not as resilient as I used to be. Things are bugging me. People are pushing my buttons. Just an unease. Fine. So do we want to take medication for the rest of our lives? I'm not opposed. It helps a lot of people, but not as an end in itself. Now I'm getting going here. So my frustration with meditation as fad is that there's a lot of junk out there. And people say, well, I tried that app and it didn't work. So meditation's not for me. Well, meditation's not medicine. So I love data. And as a head of the David Lynch Foundation, we're working on major studies with the VA to make transcendental meditation seen as a medical intervention. And so any vet with PTSD can learn for free. And that's data. That is so important. And I think especially because we are in a world that we need data, we need facts. Mm -hmm. And so that's awesome that you have it. There's a wonderful man named Mark Benioff, who is the head of Salesforce. 
So I run a foundation. And he said, philanthropy to test and prove, government to scale and grow. So, you know, government can't be funding every single initiative to handle PTSD. You know, my father had PTSD from World War II. And so I grew up with that. I grew up in a military family. So what we're doing as a foundation is raising the funds to do the large studies, 1,000 veterans, 5,000 kids in schools, seeing that they address problems of trauma or stress, and then being able to go to the VA or the Department of Education and say, you know, this is actually more effective than Ritalin. This is actually Mm -hmm. more effective than Valium. Then with the data, they can reimburse. That makes so much sense. But again, as Doro said earlier on, you know, it's all about bioindividuality and where we've all come from and everybody's different. And, you know, where I go is I get it. Okay. But if I've been through so much trauma, I don't eat right. I'm drinking Coca-Cola's. How can I sit quietly for 20 minutes? I'm just asking you, what have you seen when people really aren't in a state to sit? It's really good. If a person is really traumatized, then they don't meditate 20 minutes. Then they start off with three minutes and then they start five minutes and then they build up. But generally, if a person comes, transcendental meditation is effortlessness. And I can talk about that in a moment, but it is a very effortless technique. So I can teach a 10-year-old child at a school in the southeast D.C., where we're working right now at a place called The Ark, who's never heard of meditation, and they can access that calm just as well as you or I could who've studied and learned about it. But I do want to go back and that it is, again, it's not one size fits all. So I'm in favor of doing research on lots of different approaches. I think Ayurveda should be thoroughly studied. Chinese medicine should be thoroughly studied because there could be elements of these things that could be worked into our healthcare system because we have a disease care system now. Mm. We know that. It's out of control. It's bankrupting the country. We have to change the approach, but we have to change it with things that work. So I wish more money were being put into looking at these integrative approaches and then see how they work together. See if mindfulness works like this and TM works like that and now put them together. Maybe they're going to work 10 times better, like one medicine and another medicine working together. But you just can't guess. You have to really know. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us exactly how you teach TM and about the mantra? Sure. So first, what I want to do is explain listeners to this wonderful podcast. I have my hands up in the air, and I'm doing the analogy of an ocean where you have choppy waves on the surface and in a cross-section, quiet at its depth. So in Transcendental Meditation, how do we get from up here, transcend, go beyond, settle under those waves to settle down to that silence? And the key word here is effortlessly. And we do use a mantra, but I'll explain something more fundamental. In Transcendental Meditation, unlike other approaches— Other approaches says the mind is a monkey, monkey mind. The mind is wandering aimlessly. You have to somehow corral it. You have to somehow stop it from just wandering aimlessly. In transcendental meditation, there's a different insight or perspective. It's not that the mind is wandering aimlessly. The mind, by its nature, is seeking something more satisfying. So if you're sitting in a room listening to bad music, and in the other room, some phenomenal music comes on, where's your attention go? Or you go on a vacation and you bring two books and one book is terrible and you can't read a word and the other book is great. Hours go by. It's not hard to watch a great movie. It's not hard to listen to a great podcast like you guys do. Your mind is naturally drawn to something more satisfying and inside, really nice place. So in Transcendental Meditation, it's like teaching a child how to dive. To have the child take the correct angle, lean over like this, 
and you set up the conditions for gravity to take over. And then the child goes in the water and you don't have to say, keep going. So in transcendental meditation, we set up the conditions so the attention is drawn inward and deeper levels are more satisfying. So just like that effortless, gentle dive, your mind is drawn inward. So in TM, you're given a mantra. First of all, you learn this. It's not a group instruction. It's one-to-one. You have your own personal trainer from a certified teacher, and you're given a mantra, which is a word or a sound, a couple of syllables, no meaning, nice sound, and then you're taught how to use it properly. Lots of people think, oh, just give me the mantra and I'll figure it out. But it's not like an aspirin tablet. Mantra's half the instruction. Here's the mantra, and then if I were to teach you, then I would say, okay, We'll take an hour a day over four days. I'm going to instruct you how to use that so effortlessly, so gently, so delicately, so that all of a sudden, naturally, you settle down and you feel your body getting this deep rest. Sometimes people who don't know what it is, they go, transcendental meditation, that sounds weird. So I say, well, transcendental just means deep. And then they go, well, how do you know when your 20 minutes are up? And I said, look at your watch. (laughs) You're not going anywhere. You're just settling down. It's just, you're just settling down. Like Mm -hmm. a child can get like a temper tantrum the Mm -hmm. one way. Mm -hmm. We can go the other way too. Where does the mantra come from? Mm. So transcendental meditation has its origins over 5,000 years old. It predates Catholicism, Buddhism, Judaism, it's not an ism. Hinduism, people lump it in. They say, well, if it's from that country, it must be that. That's like saying, well, Einstein was a German Jew, so theory of relativity is a German Jewish. It's not. It's just science. So this goes, I like to say it's so far back before people arbitrarily drew lines around countries. So it had that ancient tradition, and it was passed on from teacher to student, teacher to student for thousands of years. And I studied with Maharishi. And he taught me how to teach this and many others, and then I teach it. And it's always done in personal instruction. So when we go into a school with a 1,000 kids, we bring a bunch of teachers in to teach. So you create the mantra yourself? No. Oh, good. No, I don't. So from this ancient meditation tradition, I learn from Maharishi dozens and dozens of vehicles. And then I learn how to select the right one for the right person. And that's based on a form that you fill out when you come to learn. It's based on me meeting you and the six months that it takes to train to become a teacher. The analogy is everybody has red blood, but a specialist knows, oh, you're type A, you're type O, you're RH negative, and this blood would go with that or that blood would go with that. So it's very simple. But I really make the point, if I were to teach you, that takes me a minute to give you the mantra. The rest of the time is how to use it, not making effort. Because people say, well, all right, I do a mantra meditation. I repeat a mantra. But that's on a cognitive level. That's just keeping it up here on the surface of the ocean. How do I do it so that my attention turns within and you just settle down? And one last thing I'd say to the people is they say, well, I think I'm doing it. Or I get it. And I say, again, it's not either or. Try it. If you don't like it, don't do it. And if you like it, add it. You know, it's not a sort of like I have to hold on. I've been trained by Sharon Salzberg in mindfulness. She's great. She wanted me to teach her TM. So it has to get out of that siloing. It has to get out of that. We'll never grow. We'll never impact if we're just that siloing thing. We 100% agree with that. 100% agree. You know, what do you like most about teaching? I see you as a teacher. You said you started teaching, and now you run this large foundation. Do you miss the teaching? or I, I still do. do. I still do the teach? teaching. I have to because I don't like <laughs> administration. <laughs> I really love people, 
and people genuinely come to learn. It could be maybe I taught a wife to meditate and she's really concerned about her husband who's stressed out and not the same man that he was and won't admit and he's skeptical. And I say, you can be 100% skeptical and do this. You don't have to believe in gravity. Drop a tennis ball. Hate gravity and still the tennis ball falls. <laughs> so I love it when a person comes in, often men who <laughs> want to admit something, and they're very skeptical. And I said, it doesn't make any difference. And then I teach them. And like an hour later, they open their eyes and they go, oh my gosh, I never knew that was there. How could it be that in my 40 years or 50 years, I never knew that experience? That I love. And then I love giving them a tool and then they just kick it off in their life. I don't have a philosophy they have to believe in. It's not an app they have to keep coming back to. And then do other stuff as you want. You know, if you like guided meditation before you go to bed, great. TM will just allow you to get rid of the stress so your mind is not so cluttered. So when you do a guided meditation, you're more present. So I love it. I love giving people the tool to change their lives. You can see that you're such a natural teacher. Mm -hmm. okay. How does it compare to sleep? So scientifically, when you're in a sleep state, well, there's three main states of consciousness we know. Sleep state is you're deeply rested and unconscious. And the brainwave pattern for that is called delta, which is like a half a cycle per second to four cycles, a very slow beat. Dreaming is where your body is rested and you're having some illusory experience outside. Waking state is where you're not rested and you have the real world. Transcending or this transcendent state, this meditative state that we're talking about deep within, that's where your body is deeply rested and you're awake inside. When you're asleep, you're unconscious and your body is fairly rested. When you're in self-transcending, your body is deeply rested, but you're awake. You're just settled. So it's a different style of functioning. But we work with a lot of veterans who can't sleep, you know, horror, the nightmares. And they come and they, you know, haven't slept for an hour a night and four months and they're poor family. You know, I could cry. I could just cry. Children are afraid of their mom or dad. It's a, what a horror. And they come and they learn to meditate. And within two or three days, they're sleeping like 12, 14 hours a night. And then after a week or so, they're sleeping eight hours because this is easier. It's hard for people to fall asleep. The transcendent experience is for everyone. I think it's a beautiful thing. This is a birthright of everyone. So is the mantra work like kind of as a weight to bring you in? No, it's, it's more of a catalyst. A catalyst. So that's it's, the thing it's, that it's, you wrap yeah. your... Well, here's the thing. Okay, so this is good. What's difficult about meditations where you're told don't think or mm. clear your mind of thoughts is your mind wants to think. It wants to engage. It wants to chew. It wants to think. And if you try and stop it from thinking, it's hard to do. So the mantra in TM has no meaning. Which is so hard for us to understand. It's a sound. A sound. It's a sound. If it okay. had a meaning on the surface, then you're on the gotta, gotta, gotta mind. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? If one plus one equals two. Now I'm engaged up here. Cognitive process. So number one, it has no meaning. Number two, it's a nice sound. Pleasant. Good. It has a good effect. But the way I teach you to use it, it's not in a rigid three-fourths time. Again, there's no meaning to it, and I don't have to push to make it this way. It's much more fluid. Like when you're on a plane and you see a river flowing to the ocean, that river goes all over the place, but it ultimately ends up at the ocean. So in TM with the mantra, the teacher teaches you to use it in the delicate, gentle, fluid way. And then that just like that 
the attention is turned within, and then it's a done deal. So it's like running around looking for your glasses, and they're on. When a person has learned it, they go, oh, God, that's, oh, I understand. And it's very abstract. It's mm-hmm. like trying to describe, if you've never had a kiwi, you say, what does a kiwi taste like? Well, it doesn't taste like a broccoli, and it doesn't taste like strawberry. At some point, you have to just try it. Has anyone ever said, I don't like my mantra? Oh, initially, all the time. But the nice thing about it is, in TM, you're not repeating it clearly. It becomes more of just this faint idea. Mm. So it's not articulated like that. Again, that's part of the personal instruction. When we do wellness programs, say, at J.P. Morgan Bank, and we do wellness programs at big companies, the program that we teach those CEOs is exactly the same program we teach a 10-year-old kid in the Bronx. So we don't dumb it down for the kids. We think every human being is a universe and herself or himself. Everybody deserves equal access to that experience. What we hear you saying and what we've heard you say is it's simple. It's not hard. There's no real roadblocks. It's something, as you were saying, just available to anybody if they decide that they want to learn this. Except there's a fee. Is that right? Now, it is an educational institution. It's a nonprofit organization. And there's a fee that's based on a person's ability to pay. When I do a program at a bank, it can be $1,000. If a person has on a fixed income, it can go down to $300 paid over months. If they have no money, then I run the David Lynch Foundation and they learn for free. And the way we get the free is when I do a program at a bank, I say, I'm going to charge you a little more. And they say, why? I said, so that people who can't afford it can learn for free. So we never want to turn anyone away. But that's how the teacher who spends time with a student can afford to live. But it's never to be an obstacle. And that's why we're doing the research. Because if my child has ADD and I can get insurance to cover Ritalin, well, then there should also be insurance to cover if mindfulness works, that should cover the instruction or TM works. It just we have to change our healthcare system. So the funding needs to be there to cover costs, but it's not the end game. The end game is that it should be incorporated into employee assistance programs, insurance companies, everyone. Strength and stillness. That is such a powerful title of your book. Talk to us about that. There's no strength in rigidity. There's no strength in brittle. There's no strength in anger. There's no strength in rage. There's no strength in jealousy. There's no strength. That's just vulnerable. That's just the real power. What do they say? Still waters run deep. Real power is accessing that field of silence that lies deep within every one of us. And that builds resilience. Because a strong person is a resilient person. Because the outside world is changing all the time. They call them stressors. We can't control markets, kids getting sick, stuck in traffic, all that. The strength comes in how I respond to that. If I'm tired and worn down and brittle, then something happens and I fall apart or I get angry, worse. But if I'm resilient, if I'm deeply anchored within myself, whole, and it's not just meditation, eating properly, exercising. I also believe in charity. I believe in service. I believe in all those things. That's strength. That's power. So strength only is rooted in stillness. You're working now with people who struggle with addiction. Can you tell us how TM helps people who struggle with addiction? Many people who have addictive personalities, they call it substance use disorder, many of them use it to mask anxiety, whether it's lack of self-confidence 
or it's just life or some sort of pain. That's why this whole problem with opioid addiction, sometimes people have pain and then they get addicted to these drugs because they're powerful. And if you have genetically a tendency towards addictive behavior, then you're very susceptible to the alcohol because they are more satisfying, at least initially, than the pain or the anxiety you're feeling. They mask something. The problem with programs to get over addiction, if they just say abstinence, if they just say stop, so now I'm anxious and now I just have to stop. Well, then now my drug addiction becomes an alcohol addiction, becomes a food addiction, becomes a sex addiction, becomes a gambling addiction because I have to do something. The beautiful thing about meditation in general and also the peace that you experience when you're transcending is it's an experience of ease and calm and connectedness within yourself. It overrides the neural pathways or the, the addictive behavior. Like, okay, I'm unhappy. My brain just says, okay, go for that alcohol. Well, now I don't have that experience of unhappy because I'm connected to myself in my brain. And so now I don't reach for it. So we're working now, a study is going to start at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York big study that's going to look at the effects of TM on opioid addiction with adolescents because more people will die in America from substance abuse this year than died in 10 years in Vietnam, Americans, in one year. And 17 teenagers die every day from opioid addiction alone. So that's why we're wanting to bring this into schools. The quote that we had seen, again, I'm going back to the stillness, is nowhere can a man withdraw to a more untroubled quietude than in his own soul. Grant yourself this withdrawal continually and refresh yourself. Beautiful. And Isaiah says, be still and know that I am God. doesn't say chant, yell, run around. It just says be still. And so whatever language you want to use, whether it's the language of faith or the language of science or the language, whatever, because in a quiet mind, that alpha one you see more deeply into the truth. You know when you're talking to someone and you know they're not listening to you. That's not alpha one. Their eyes are on you, but you know this person is someplace else. And then you know when you're talking to someone and they're listening, you're locked in. And when you're silent and still within yourself and awake, that restful alertness at alpha one, then you see the truth. You know, you just see the truth. When someone comes to you, you're more able to be empathetic. You're more able to really help them. And you're more truthful with yourself. You know? So the prescription, so if this does get into the doctor's office and they can write a prescription, the prescription would be meet with the teacher, step one, right? Meet with the teacher, step two, you get your oh, mind. Oh, okay. So yeah. there's five steps to learn transcendental meditation. The first step is introductory talk, which explains the whole thing. And then if you decide you want to learn, then there's four steps of actual learning. The first day, let's say Monday, is about an hour to an hour and a half, and that's one-to-one, where you meet with your TM teacher, trainer, and the teacher instructs you to meditate, gives you a mantra, teaches you how to use it, just the first day. Now, let's say eight people or six people learned individually on Monday. Then all six people come back on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in a small class, and you meet for about an hour. So day one, you learn it. Day two, three, and four, You come together in a small class and you talk about your experiences such that by the end of that fourth day, Trish, you really got it. This is not something that's an acquired skill that takes months to master. 
But it requires to match the studies. Does it require the 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes afternoon? I'd say 99% of the people I teach do 20 minutes right away. I mean, it's that easy. And they'll go, that was 20 minutes. It felt like five. So it's really that simple. Not the first day, but by the four days. So ideally it's done, and traditionally meditation in ancient times was done dawn and dusk, two times. You do it first thing in the morning, because now your brain is sort of dull from sleep and we reach for our cups of coffee or something. But now you sit and meditate, get up before the kids, and then wakes up the brain and energizes you for the day and makes you more resilient for the day. And then as you go along, if there's mindfulness things you want to do, great, you do them better. Then at the end of the day, ideally before dinner, sometime before dinner, you again sit for 20 minutes and meditate. And it's like a bath. It's like washes the stress off of the day. So now when you're with your family at dinner, you're more present with your family, and then you sleep much better at night. So those are the ideals. Mm. We don't do it right before bed because it's relaxing, but it's incredibly energizing as well. You may have answered this question, but we like to ask all our guests their favorite quote. So I don't know if the Isaiah quote is your favorite <laughs> quote, but do you have, have a, one, yes. do you have a favorite quote? There's a quote? quote, ancient meditation text, which says, Vasudev Gatumbakam, the world is your family. We're I love all that. connected. We're all connected. And that child in Rwanda or that guy in the foothills of Appalachia who's a veteran who's living in sorrow, he went and served our country and then came back. That's my brother. Those are my children. So mm. that's my favorite quote. And then what book do you think everyone should read besides yours, of course? <laughs> oh, there's so many that come to mind. This is a bigger book, but there's a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Oh, you know it. Yeah, yeah, very well. So talk about it. <laughs> no, you talk about it. <laughs> no, I mean, the theory behind the body keeps the score is we have a lot of experiences when we're growing up that can be traumatizing or stressful, and we may forget about them. Memory may forget about them, but the body keeps the score. The scar is there. And that experience, that trauma, that stress is driving our behavior. It's driving the way we react to the people we love. It drives the fear we might have. Someone loves us, but we have a trauma from the past and we don't trust them. And we are victim from the past. I never understood. They talk about enlightenment from meditation, and they use the term liberation. And I never understood what that meant. It means liberation from the binding influence of past traumas. Because when you meditate and your body gets that deep rest, it heals those traumas. Therapy has many wonderful things, but they're based on what you remember. But when you meditate, you can actually go deeper and let your body heal itself. So Body Keeps the Score is just a wonderful book. excellent book. book. Yeah. We talk about that a lot. Mm -hmm. And so that's a good one. For our listeners who are interested in TM, which I'm sure there will be a lot, how can they find it? Well, you go to tm.org, www.tm.org, and you'll see all the different research on the meditation, explanation about the meditation. And then there's a drop down that says, oh, I live in this city or I live in that city. And they can tell you how to get there and how to find a local teacher. And if you're interested in just knowing more about the work of the David Lynch Foundation, there's some very inspiring videos there. Then you go to davidlynchfoundation.org, but tm.org. Bob, we thank you for yes, joining us thank today. thank you so much. And we know you're passionate about what you do. It comes through and you've just educated us and we're so happy. There's a beautiful quote that Maharishi one time said, Someone asked him, what are the fundamentals of success? He said, once you have a good idea, it's two things, conviction and persistence. Conviction is a vertical thing. I believe to the core of my being this is good. And then persistence is horizontal over time, and I'm not going to give up until I get there. 
So I congratulate you for the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>